0: Section One of Tongues of Conscience. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Lisa Reichert. Tongues of Conscience by Robert Hitchens. Section One. Sea Change nothing of him that doth fade but doth suffer a sea change into something rich and strange shakespeare sea change part one the rainbow in london nightfall is a delirium of bustle in the country the coming of a dream the town scatters a dust of city men over its long and lighted streets powders its crying thoroughfares with gaily dressed creatures who are hidden like bats during the hours of day opens a thousand defiant yellow eyes that have been sealed in sleep throws off its wrapper and shows its elaborate toilet the country grows demure and brown most modest in the shadows labourers go home along the damp and silent lanes with heavy weariness The parish clergyman flits like a blackbird through the twinkling village. Dogs bark from solitary farms. A beautiful and soft depression fills all the air like incense, or like evening bells. But whether night reveals or hides the activities of men, it changes them most curiously. The difference between man in day, man in night, is acute. The arrival of darkness always meant something to Reverend Peter Uniac, whose cure of souls now held him far from the swarming alleys and the docks in which his early work had been done. He seldom failed to give this visitor, so strange and soft-footed, some slight greeting. Sometimes his welcome was a sigh, sometimes a prayer, sometimes a clenching of the hands, a smile, a pause in his onward walk. Looking backward along his past, he could see his tall figure in many different places, aware of the first footfalls of the night, now alone and thinking of night's allegory of man's end, now in company when the talk insensibly changed its character, flowing into deeper, more mysterious or confidential channels. Peter Uniacke had listened to informal confessions too, as the night fell, confessions of sin that at first surprised him that at last could no longer surprise him and he had confessed himself before the altar of the twilight and had wondered why it is that sometimes nature seems to have the power of absolution even as god has it now at the age of thirty-two he heard the footsteps of night on a windy evening of november they drew near to the wall of the churchyard in which stood the sturdy and rugged building where now he ministered on a little isle set lonely in a harsh and dangerous northern sea he listened to them leaning his arms along this wall by which the grey and sleepless waves sang loudly in the churchyard growing gradually dim and ethereal were laid many bodies from which the white vampires of the main had sucked out the souls Here moldered fisher-lads, who had whistled over the nets, and dreamed rough dreams of winning island girls, and breeding hardy children. Here reposed old limbs of salty mariners, who had for so long defied the ocean, that when they knew themselves taken at the last, they turned their rugged faces down to their enemy with a stony and an ironic wonder. And here, too, among these cast-up bodies of the drowned, lay many women who had loved the prey of the sea and kissed the cheeks turned acrid by its winds and waters some of them had died from heart-sickness cursing the sea some had faded withering like the pale sand roses beside the sea some had lived to old age by empty hearths in the sound of the sea inscriptions faded upon the stones that lay above them texts of comfort in which the fine salt films crept faint verses of sweet hymns defiled by the perching sea-birds old rhymes like homely ejaculations of very simple hearts sank into the gathering darkness on every hand the grave seemed murmuring to the night look on me i hold a lover and i i keep fast a maiden and within my arms crumbles a little child caught by the sea And I fold a mother whose son is in the hideous water foliage of the depths of the sea. And I embrace an old captain whom the sea loved even in his hollow age. The last inscription that stood clear to Peter Uniacke's eyes in the dying light ran thus. Here lies the body of Jack Pringle, cast up by the sea on December 4th, 1896, He was boy on the schooner flying fish, his age seventeen, lead kindly light. Uniacke watched this history go into the maw of the darkness, and when it was gone he found himself environed by the cool sea noises which seemed to grow louder in the night, wondering whether the kindly light was indeed leading on Jack Pringle, no longer boy on the schooner flying fish, but what? the soul of a fisher lad who had kissed his girl and drunk his glass and told many a brave and unfitting tale and sworn many a lusting oath following some torch along the radiant ways of heaven was that it uniacke had possibly preached now and then that so indeed it was or perhaps was the light-hearted and careless living lad caught fast like sunk wreckage in the undersea of hell where pain is like a living fire in the moving dimness. His age, seventeen, could that be true, and God merciful? With such thoughts, Uniacke greeted the falling of night. In the broad daylight, full of the songs and of the moving figures of his brawny fisher-folk, he had felt less poetically uncertain. He had said, like men at sea, All's well. More he had been able to feel it but now he leaned on the churchyard wall and it was cold to his arms and the song of the sea was cold in his ears and the night lay cold upon his heart and his mind in the grim and apparently unmeaning way of mind set to sad music in a sad atmosphere crept round and round about the gravestone of this boy bereft of boyhood so early of manhood ere he won to it and carried so swiftly into mystery beyond the learning of all philosophy. Ignorance, in jersey and dripping sea-boots, set face to face with all knowledge, and that called a tragedy. Yet now to Peter Uniacke it was tragedy, and his own situation, left in the safety of ignorance, preaching to the ignorant. Tragedy, too, because of the night, and the winds, and the sea-noises, and the bareness of this isle. Beyond the church a light shone out, and a bearded shadow towered and dwindled upon a white blind. Uniac, a bachelor, and now almost of necessity a recluse, entertained for the present a visitor. Remembering the substance of the shadow, he opened the churchyard gate, threaded his way among the gravestones, and was quickly at the vicarage door. As he passed within, a yellow glow of lamplight and of firelight streamed into the narrow passage, from a chamber on the left hand and he heard his piano surprised to learn that it could be taught to deliver passionately long winding melodies from tristan and isolde uniac laid down his hat and stick and entered his sitting-room still companioned by the shadowy thought-form of the boy of the schooner flying fish who seemed to tramp at his side noiselessly in long sea-boots that streamed with the salt water the man at the piano turned round, showing a handsome and melancholy face, and eyes that looked as if they were tired, having seen too many men and deeds and cities. "'I make myself at home, you see,' he said, "'as I hope you will some day in my studio, when you visit me at Kensington.' Uniacke smiled, and laid his hand on a bell which tinkled shrewishly. "'It is a great treat for me to hear music, and a voice not my own in this room,' he answered are you ready for tea? Thank you. I painted till it was dark. I was able to paint. I'm glad of that. When it was too dim to see and too cold to feel the brush between my fingers, I came back in the twilight to my new roof-tree. I am thankful to be out of the inn. Yet I've stayed in worse places in Italy and Greece. But they were gilded by the climate. He sat down by the fire and stretched his limbs. Uniacke looked at him rather curiously. To the lonely clergyman it was a novel experience to play host to a man of distinction, to a stranger who had filled the world with his fame years ago. Three days before, in one of his island walks, Uniacke had come upon a handsome bearded man in a lane full of mud between bleak walls of stone. The man stopped him courteously, asked him if he were not the clergyman of the isle, and receiving an affirmative reply, began to make some inquiries as to lodging accommodation. "'My name is Sir Graham Hamilton,' he said presently. Uniac started with surprise, and looked at the stranger curiously. He had read much of the great sea painter, of his lonely wanderings, of his melancholy, of his extraordinary house in Kensington, and, just recently, of his wretched condition of health, which it was said had driven him suddenly from London, the papers knew not whither. "'I thought you were ill,' he blurted out i am not very well the painter said simply and the inn here is exceedingly uncomfortable but i want to stay this is the very home of the sea here i find not merely the body of the sea but also its soul there are no good lodgings i am afraid said the clergyman nobody ever wants to lodge here it seems i do well then i must keep on at the inn come to stay with me will you Uniac suddenly said, "'I have a spare room. It is scarcely ever occupied. My friends find this island a far cry, except in the height of summer. I shall be glad of your company, and glad to make you as comfortable as I can.' "'You are very kind,' said the painter, hesitating. "'But I scarcely—' "'Come as my guest,' said the clergyman, reddening slightly. "'Thank you, I will, and some day you must come to me in London.' Now the painter was installed at the vicarage, and blessed each hour his happy escape from the inn, whose walls seemed expanded by the forcible and athletic smell of stale fish. Uniac's servant-girl brought in the tea. The two men had it by the fire. Presently, Hamilton said, "'Nightfall is very interesting and curious here.' "'I find it so almost everywhere,' Uniac said. "'Yes. It can never be dull.' "'But here, in winter at least, it is extraordinarily—' "'He paused for the exactly right word, in a calm way that was peculiar to him, "'and that seemed to emphasize his fine self-possession. "'Pathetic and suggestive of calamity.' "'I have noticed that, indeed,' Uniacke answered. "'And never, I think, more than to-night.' "'Hamilton looked across at him in the firelight. "'Where did you see it fall?' he asked.' i was by the wall of the churchyard it was you then whom i saw from the window it seemed to be a mourner looking at the graves i was looking at them but nobody i care for deeply is buried there the night however in such an island as this makes every grave seem like the grave of a person one has known it is the sea i dare say so close on every hand why this house of yours might be a ship afloat a hundred miles from land, judging by the sounds of the waves. He sighed heavily. "'I hope the air will do you good,' Uniacke remarked, with a sudden relapse into conversational lameness. "'Thank you, but sea air is no novelty to me. Half of my life, at least, has been spent in it. I have devoted all the best of my life, my powers, my very soul, to the service of the sea. And now, when I am growing old—' "'I sometimes think that I shall hate it before I go.' "'Hate it?' "'Yes.' "'Well, but it has brought you fame.' "'Hm. And wealth, and a thousand acquaintances. "'Yes, that's quite true. "'Sometimes, nevertheless, we learn in the end "'to hate those who have brought us most. "'Perhaps because they have educated us "'in the understanding of disappointment. "'You love the sea?' "'Yes.' "'You wouldn't be here otherwise.' "'I did not come here exactly because of that,' Uniacke said slowly. "'No,' said the painter. "'Rather to forget something. "'I doubt if this is a place which could teach one to forget. "'I find it quite otherwise.' The two men looked at each other, the elderly painter on his height of fame, the younger clergyman in his depth of obscurity, and each felt that there was a likeness between them. I came here to forget a woman, Uniak said at last, moved by a strange impulse to speak out. Yes, I see. It is the old idea of sorrowful men, a hermitage. I have often wondered in London, in Rome, in Athens, whether a hermitage is of any avail. Men went out into the desert in old days. Legend has it that holiness alone guided them there. All their disciples believed that. Reading about them, I have often doubted it he smiled rather coldly and cynically. "'You don't know what a hermitage can mean. You have only been here three days. Besides, you come in search of—' "'Search!' Hamilton interrupted with an unusual quickness. "'Of work and health.' "'Oh, yes. Do you care, since we are on intimate topics, to tell me any more about yourself and—and—that woman?' "'Yes. I loved her. She disappeared out of my life.' I don't know at all where she is, with whom, how she lives, anything at all about her. I don't suppose I ever shall. She may be dead.' "'You don't think you would know it if she were?' "'How could I? Who would tell me?' "'Not something within you, not yourself?' Uniacke was surprised by this remark. It did not fit in precisely with his conception of his guest's mind, so far as he had formed one. "'Such an idea never occurred to me,' he said.' DO YOU BELIEVE THAT SUCH AN ABSOLUTE CERTAINTY COULD BE PUT INTO A MAN'S MIND, THEN, WITHOUT A REASON, A SCRAP OF EVIDENCE, A HINT TO EYE OR EAR? I DON'T KNOW. I... I WANT TO KNOW. THAT SOMEONE'S DEAD? THAT SOMEONE IS NOT DEAD. HOW LOUD THE SEA IS GETTING! IT ALWAYS SOUNDS MUCH LIKE THAT AT NIGHT IN WINTER. DOES THE WINTER NOT SEEM VERY LONG TO YOU UP HERE, QUITE ALONE? Oh, yes. And monotonous. Often. But we have times of keen excitement, of violent, even of exhausting activity. I have had to rush from my pulpit up to my shoulders in the sea. A wreck? Yes, there have been many. There was the schooner flying fish. She broke up when I was holding service one December morning. Only the skipper was saved alive, and he—what of him— He went what the people here call silly, from the shock. Not directly. It came on him gradually. He would not leave the island. He would never trust the sea again. So he's here still? Yes. Just then, the two plaintive bells of the church began to ring on the wind. There he is, Uniacke said. Where? He's our bell-ringer. It's the only thing he takes any pleasure in, ringing the bells for church, and at nightfall. I let him do it, poor fellow he's got a queer idea into his brain that his drowned mates will hear the bells some night and make the land guided by the sound when the darkness falls he always rings for a full hour how strange how terrible they sat by the fire listening to the pathetic chime of the two bells whose voices were almost hidden in the loud sea voices that enveloped the little island with their cries presently the painter shifted in his armchair there is something i there is something very eerie to me in the sound of those two bells now i know why they are ringing and who is ringing them he said with a slight irritation don't you find they affect your nerves at all no i like to hear them they tell me that one poor creature is happy the skipper all we island folk call him so believes he will bring his mate safe to shore some day and each time he sets those bells going, he thinks the happy hour is perhaps close at hand. Poor fellow! And he is summoning the drowned to come up out of their world. They sat silent again for three or four minutes. Then Sir Graham said, "Uniac, you have finished your tea?' "'Yes, Sir Graham.' "'Has your day's work tired you very much?' "'No?' "'Then I wish you would do me a favour. I want to see your skipper.' "'Can I get into the church?' "'Yes, he always leaves the door wide open while he rings the bells, "'so that his mates can come in from the sea to him. "'Poor fellow, poor fellow!' "'He got up. "'I shall go across to the church now,' he said. "'I'll take you there. "'Wrap yourself up. "'It's cold to-night.' "'It is very cold.' the painter pulled a great cloak over his shoulders and a cap down over his glittering and melancholy eyes that had watched for many years all the subtle changes of the colour and the movement of the sea uniacke opened the vicarage door and they stood in the wind the night was not dark but one of those wan and light grey nights that seem painted with the very hues of wind and of cloud it was like a fluid round about them and surely flowed hither and thither now swaying quietly now spreading away shredding out as water that is split by hard substances it was full of noise as is a whirlpool in which melancholy cries resound for ever above this noise the notes of the two bells alternated like the voices of stars in a stormy sky even living men at sea to-night would not hear those bells said the painter and the drowned how can they hear Who knows, said the clergyman. Perhaps they are allowed to hear them, and to offer up prayers for their faithful comrade. I think faithfulness is heaven in a human heart. They moved across the churchyard, and all the graves of the drowned flickered round their feet in the gusty greyness. They passed Jack Pringle's grave, where the kindly light lay in the stone. When they gained the church, Sir Graham saw that the door was set wide open to the night. He stood still, And so those dead mariners are to pass in here, he said, under this porch. Uniac, cannot you imagine the scene if they came? Those dead men with their white, sea-washed faces, their dripping bodies, their wild eyes that had looked on the depths of the sea, their hanging hands round which the fishes had nibbled with their oval lips, the procession of the drowned to their faithful captain, if i stood here long enough alone my imagination would hear them would hear their ghostly boat grate its keel upon the island beach and the tramp of their sodden sea-boots how many were there i never heard only one body was cast up and that is buried by the churchyard wall shall we go in yes they entered through the black doorway the church was very dim and smelt musty and venerable rather as the cover of an old and worn Bible smells. And now that they were within it, the bells sounded different, less magical, more full of human music. Their office, the summoning of men to pray, the benediction of the marriage tie, the speeding of the departed on the eternal road, became apparent and evoked accustomed thoughts. "'Where is the belfry?' said Sir Graham in a whisper. "'This way,' We have to pass the vestry and go up a stone staircase. Uniacke moved forward along the uncarpeted pavement, on which his feet, in their big-nailed boots, rang harshly. The painter followed him through a low and narrow door, which gave on to a tiny stairway, each step of which was dented and crumbled at the uneven edge. They ascended in the dark, not without frequent stumbling, and heard always the bells which seemed sinking down to them from the sky— Presently a turn brought them to a pale ray of light which lay like a thread upon the stone. At the same moment the bells ceased to sound. Both Uniac and Sir Graham paused simultaneously, the vision of the light and the cessation of the chimes holding them still for an instant, almost without their knowledge. There was a silence that was nearly complete, for the tower walls were thick and kept the sea-voices and the blowing winds at bay. And while they waited, involuntarily holding their breath a hoarse and uneven voice cried out anxiously and hopefully from above are ye coming mates are ye coming heave along boys d'ye hear me i'm your skipper heave along uniac half turned to the painter whose face was very white what are ye waiting for continued the voice i heard ye coming i heard ye at the door come up i say and welcome to ye welcome to ye all mates Ye've been a damned long time comin'. He thinks. He thinks. Whispered Uniacke to his companion. I know it's cruel. What shall we? Ye've made the land just in time, mates. Continued the voice. For there's a great gale comin' up to night. The flyin' fish couldn't live in her under bare poles, I reckon. I'm glad ye've got ashore. Where are ye? I say. Where are ye? The sound of the voice approached the two men on the stairs the thread of light broadened and danced on the stone high up there appeared the great figure of a man in a seaman's jersey with a peaked cap on his head in his broad rough hands he held a candle which he shaded with his fingers while he peered anxiously and expectantly down the dark and narrow funnel of the stairway "Hallo!" he cried "Hallo there the hail rang down in the night sir graham was trembling i see ye cried the skipper it's jack eh isn't it little jack boys young monkey up to his damned larks that i've reckoned up these many nights while i stood ringing here i'll strike the life out of you jack i will wait till i come down lads wait till i come down and he sprang forward his huge limbs shaking with glad excitement his feet missed a stare in his hurry of approach and throwing abroad his hands to the stone walls of the belfry in an effort to save himself he let fall the candlestick it dropped on the stones with a dull clatter as the darkness closed in the skipper who had recovered his footing swore a round oath sir graham and uniacke heard his heavy tread descending until his breath was warm on their faces where are ye lads he cried out where are ye can't ye throw a word o welcome to a mate he laid his hands heavily on uniacke's shoulders in the dark and felt him over with an uncertain touch is it jack he said. Why, what do you got on, lad? Is it Jack, I say? Skipper, Uniac said in a low voice, it's not Jack. As he spoke, he struck a match. The tiny light flared up unevenly right in the skipper's eyes. They were sea-blue and blazing with eagerness and with the pitiful glare of madness. Over the clergyman's shoulder the pale painter with his keen eyes swept the bearded face of the skipper with a rapid and greedy glance. By the time the match dwindled, and the darkness closed in again, the face was a possession of his memory. He saw it even though it was actually invisible, the rugged features dignified by madness, the clear blue eyes full of a saddening fire, and, ere the match faded, of a horror of disappointment, the curling brown beard that flowed down on the blue jersey. But he had no time to dwell on it now, for a dreary noise rose up in that confined space it was the great seaman whimpering pitifully in the dark it isn't jack he blubbered and they could hear his huge limbs shaking Ye haven't come back mates Ye haven't come back and the great gale coming up the great gale coming as the words died away a gust of wind caught the belfry and tore at its rough-hewn and weather-worn stones "'Let us go down,' said Sir Graham, turning to feel his way into the church. "'Come, skipper,' said Uniak, "'come with us.' He laid hold of the seaman's mighty arm and led him down the stairs. He said nothing. On a sudden all the life and hope had died out of him. When they gained the grey churchyard and could see his face again in the pale and stormy light, it looked shrunken, piqued, and childish.' and the curious elevation of madness was replaced by the uncertainty and weakness of idiocy he shifted on his feet and would not meet the pitiful glances of the two men Uniacke touched him on the shoulder come to the vicarage skipper he said kindly come in and warm yourself by the fire and have some food it's so cold to-night but the seaman suddenly broke away and stumbled off among the gravestones whimpering foolishly like a dog that cannot fight grief with thought. The sea! Ah, the hatefulness of the sea! said the painter. Will it ever have to answer for its crimes before God? End of section 1